0: Well, good morning. Thank you for gathering with us this morning. Thank you for joining with us as we gather for our public worship gathering to continue to be a community that is learning to live and love like Jesus in East Petersburg. If this is your first time with us this morning, we are glad you are here. Simply, we are glad you are here. and I, I hope you stop at the, the welcome desk in the lobby. I hope you pick up a, a mug. It's just our way of saying, hey, welcome And also, you were invited to the table. Inside that mug, you'll find that there's some some aspects of our story, but we also look forward to getting to know a little bit of your story as well. So please, please stop and pick up one of those mugs. This morning, we continue our Lent series. We've been in this Lent series called Living Ink, a Lent series on finding solitude and silence and fasting in the wilderness. We are in our fourth week of this series. And in it, we look to reflect. As we have been learning, Lent is a deeply reflective season for many people. It is reflective of the 40 days leading up to Easter. It's a season in which is observed by many different Christian denominations, including those who are Catholic, what we may call mainline, or those which are more orthodox. Traditionally, Lent is a time for those that observe it, that we, in a time which you prepare yourself and you reflect and you look at your faith and you, and you take it face and head on. And you begin to, through a, a bunch of spiritual disciplines, prepare yourself to see what God may be saying to you in that season. And you include a lot of prayer and penance and confession and almsgiving and making amends, self-denial and sacrifice. Over the past few years, it's also become a tradition that many Anabaptist churches and evangelical churches have started to explore as an important time in which we can learn to find solitude and silence in our lives. Put simply, it is a time in which we learn to pause, a time in which we just force ourselves not to be so distracted and to be so busy in the pause. Where we not only face the silence we experience in life sometimes, but we own it, and we learn to be okay with it, and we learn to wrestle with it, and we wrestle with ourselves and with God in this season and what we may find Him calling us to in this season of pause. That is why this morning I've entitled our fourth study of the Living Ink series, as pausing and alignment. Pausing and alignment. I confess that Lent was not always a season growing up that I took a lot of time to observe. It was not something our churches that I grew up in practiced. It wasn't something that I naturally found myself pausing into to to observe. I did not follow lectionary scripture reading or pause in a season of Lent and maybe you're like that too. And, and so sometimes when we get into like group confessions or lectionary readings or doing some kind of interpretive art things that we often do in this Lent season, you don't respond quite as the same to those things as you may somewhere else with something else. And I'm like that too. Lent has always been a hard season for me. I don't like to stop and pause. I like to just continue to stay on with whatever God is doing. Though no, it may not be how some of us like to respond or worship or reflect most naturally. If we are willing, we can find there is something to be said about learning to intentionally pause and align ourselves to what we experience in the weight of this season. It is a very weighty season. Actually, a few weeks ago, the Lancaster Newspapers was sending out some emails, and they asked uh, me, what am I giving up for Lent? And because Lent is not one of those seasons in which I pause for, I decided, well, I'm not even going to respond to to uh, this this email because I don't really give up anything for Lent. It's not something that I practice regularly. And the next week, he realized that I hadn't emailed him back yet, and so he emailed me again and he said, Well, if you're not giving up something for Lent, tell me what does the Lent season mean for you? How do you respond to this Lent season? So. In it, I responded with a quote that ended up getting uh, published in the Lancaster newspapers. You may have seen it, or you may have not, but I'm just going to read this to you, and I offer it to you as what I've learned the Lent season means for me, how I've learned to pause and find meaning in this season. During the Lent season, I will be embracing an attitude of solitude and surrender. It is a season that reminds us of that which enslaves us, And oppresses us. I like to remember that and face it along with my own mortality. In essence, I stand in the dark and the looming shadows of the coming cross. And remember what freedom, grace, mercy, and healing we find through Jesus on the other side of the cross. That is what Lent has meant for me. It's a time to pause and to face things. And this morning as we explore uh, this scripture together, as we look to continue our Lenten series together, we are going to practice pausing. This morning we are going to push into the Lent season by hitting pause on our minds, pause on whatever it is that is distracting us or oppressing right now, and just sitting here. In this season we find ourselves forced to observe and to reflect. I ask that you pay attention this morning. As we read the passages and we talk, to see what God is saying to us in this season, but what God may also be saying to you specifically in this season. Pay attention to what God is saying to you. As we read the passage, I hope you pay attention to what you observe in this story. What is it that grabs you? Where is it in the story that you actually find yourself wanting to grapple with the story because it doesn't make you comfortable? Pay attention. Observe those things. Begin to reflect on what emotions you experience as we read the passage. Pay attention to whose faces come to your mind or what comes to your mind when we read the passage. Even feel free to jot those things down. And after the passage, we will discuss a few takeaways that I find worth mentioning for us here this morning, but I also invite you to spend time this week with this passage, to discuss it with others and with your spouses and with yourself and with God, saying, what is this passage saying to you? Me or us in this season. This morning through Lent, we remember the 40 days in which Jesus hit pause, the 40 days in which he spent time in the wilderness, embarking in a path of discernment, both in solitude and silence and fasting, before starting his ministry. It was a time in which he walked out and purposely experienced abandonment to be able to observe and reflect what it was that God was calling him. That is what we are focused on this morning. I actually enjoy visiting deserts, so I love the idea of Jesus walking into the deserts. A few years ago, um, I, I enjoyed visiting this desert in specific. It's the White Sands of New Mexico. Has anyone ever been there? Wow. So the White Sands of New Mexico is one of those places, it's the only place in the U.S. where the sand is actually white and not just like a sturdy brown. It is a place that is very unique. It's what we would picture the desert looking like overseas uh, in a uh, Middle Eastern country, but it's the only place in the U.S. that we actually get those big sand dunes and all that, and it is nowhere near the ocean. I have my doubts that I could ever live in a desert, but I really do enjoy li- uh, going through them. But with all the cold weather and snow we've been having lately, I may entertain the idea of living in a desert just a little bit more. In 2009, Katie and I had just finished a tour. We ended up in Southern California, and all of our team had to fly out of L.A., and so Katie and I stayed there in L.A. for a little bit and decided that, well, we're going to take our time getting back to D.C. where we are living, into the D.C. metro, and so we had a 15-passenger van and trailer, and we had to trek across the country, and one of the places that I wanted to stop was White Sands, New Mexico. New Mexico. In fact, when we pulled up, I was like drop-jawed on how beautiful I thought it was. Of course, it was about 110 degrees that day, and Katie didn't even want to get out of the car. But I got out, and I danced, and I pranced in the, in the sands as the wind blew it, and I really, really enjoyed it. I probably would have enjoyed it a little more if Katie would have also got out in the raging heat. <laughs> The desert is an interesting place, and what I like about it is in it you experience void. You experience quiet, a unique sense of quiet. In fact, if you've ever drove through the desert at night, it is really creepy. It is so quiet. The sky looks so big, and you have never seen anything so black. And you know that you're ours sometimes from the next town. There is something very unique about driving through this void and quiet place. But in it, you also experience feelings of loneliness. You can be with 12 people, but there's something about the desert that makes you feel lonely. Because instantly, like the ocean, you realize, wow, I'm about this big. And that is about this big. And it is a unique feeling. Jesus found the desert to be a great place to discern, to listen, to overcome before starting his ministry And for many people, the desert has offered the same experience because it's void, it's quiet, it's lonely. And you actually have to wrestle with yourself. You have to grapple with yourself. You have to overcome temptations. You have to overcome yourself and loneliness. If you're sensing that God is working on something new in you, I encourage you to find, what is my desert? Because it is a great place to walk into and to discern. In the same way, not every desert experience is so life-giving as discernment and looking to see what God has next for you. In fact, the desert can actually take life from you quickly. A few years later after that one, I think it was in 2010, I felt the desert in a completely different way, a way that mirrors some of the things Jesus had to wrestle with in the desert. We see that Jesus dealt with a lot of temptations in the desert. And we aren't always tourists roaming through the white sands. In fact, in 2010, we again experienced some time in the desert. This time, we decided to take a trip as we were moving from uh, here in the east coast to the west coast of Church Plate. We decided to take old Route 66, we like to get our kicks in on old Route 66. You remember that saying? So I, I really wanted to explore Route 66. So we decided, hey, we're running out of gas. Let's stop in Needles, California. We pull into Needles. Has anyone been to Needles? Needles was 116 degrees the day that we pulled into it. Uh, we had a U-Haul and, and this trailer with our minivan on the front of it. And we were, we were hauling across the country. And uh, that thing was not gas-friendly at all. And so we fill up, and I'm filling up, and I see this bank sign across the street that says 116. And that is really hot. I mean, I go in, I grab a slushie, and uh, decide that, okay, we're going to try to just push through the desert because it's just too hot to really enjoy it today. Well, not only was it too hot for me to enjoy the desert, it was really too hot for the U-Haul to enjoy the desert either. And so about 15 miles outside of the city, uh, we broke down. And uh, we overheated, and it did not want to deheat anytime soon. In fact, you can barely see it in this picture. But see those little desert hills down Route sixty six? Going up one of those hills is where we broke down. So I got out of the, the U-Haul to see if there was any other cars or any people or anything worth calling help for. Our cell phones didn't have coverage, and we realized that like we could see needles because the desert's really empty and void, we could see needles like 15 miles away, but there was no way in 116 degrees I was going to trek down to the needles for help. So luckily we just waited for the car to, to, to cool down, and we were able to use some melted ice. By that time all the ice in our cooler had melted, so we used that to kind of refill the coolant. And we were able to continue on, but in that experience I realized the desert is not always a life given place. Sitting two hours in a broken U-Haul is not a life-given space. Perhaps when we talk about Lent and remembering the experience of Jesus in the desert, this this is the experience you connect with in this season. Maybe you feel like you're broken down in the desert right now. Maybe you don't identify with the desert as a place of discernment, but of a place of loneliness, of solitude, of abandonment, and forced, not wanted, surrender. Perhaps you're in a season like that now, a season in which you squirm a little bit, realizing, hey, it's really hard to hear God's voice right now. Well, this morning I think we're going to talk about a passage that will speak to your context, and I encourage you to pay attention to what God is saying to you, regardless what season of the desert you're in, with the one that is life-giving discernment, getting to hear the voice of God, or this one in which you are faced with abandonment. We're going to be looking at Luke 15, 1 through 7. I invite you to, to read along with me. It'll be on the screen in front of you. You can also follow along in your Bible. If you want to follow along in the pew Bible in front of you, it'll be on page 1035. And regardless what season of the desert you find yourself in this morning, I want to say this again. I think you will find an identity and a sense of the wilderness or desert in this story that Jesus tells. This passage is actually the first of three parables that deal with lost things, things that have gotten lost in the wilderness or lost out and about. It's the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then the lost son. And if you're in a season of longing for God's voice and squirming to hear it in the desert a little bit, I encourage you to spend time with these three passages this week and listen to what the Father's heart says to those people who feel lost or abandoned. He, God loves to take that which is on the outside and bring it to the inside. And that's what we're going to read about this morning. That thing which is in the desert, he loves to bring into the oasis. Luke 15, 1 through 7. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. Than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. It's a passage we've come to know really well. It's a passage that we talk about a lot, and in it we usually make these really funny quirks like, well, sheep are really dumb right? We say that. Whenever we read this passage, how many times have we heard somebody use the analogy that sheep are really dumb, right? And we're a lot like sheep, and so we're really dumb, and we need a really good shepherd to find us. Well, this morning, I'm going to reverse that a little bit. I'm actually going to tell you, sheep are also really smart. So there is this whole dumb side the sheep. When I worked at Sight and Sound, I I got used to that. I mean, they weren't always the brightest things. In fact, they're always out in the weather. And so, you know, they get yellow, they get sticky, they get dirty, they like to stay away from you and in their own group out there. And so there's part of them that isn't so bright. But there's also this side to sheep that are really, really bright. In fact, a study recently I read on the Huntington Post says this. Sheep can carry the mental image of another sheep or a person for two years. That's a long time. One, One interaction with a person, and that sheep can remember in two years, what they think about that person, what that person made them feel, and how they need to respond in that situation. That is not dumb because I can't remember everyone's face two years alone. Sheep also have a really smart side to them. Sheep have a really great sense of community. Usually sheep don't like to wander into the desert or the wilderness on purpose. It's not intentionally something they do. They like lush green grasses. Sheep don't look for trouble. In fact, they naturally run from it quickly. They have great senses and they're always on alert. They don't rely on one person to be on alert. They all have great senses. They like to stick together a lot. Sheep are pretty social, especially with each other, and it's usually go- easy to get more than one herd to connect together. They quickly will identify leaders in their pack and trust themselves to routines and to following these leaders into green grasses. They know they're not going to take them intentionally into a desert. However, when a sheep gets separated from its pack is when we experience a sheep get kind of dumb. It's when it gets a little stupid. It's when it gets stressed. Its anxiety gets raised. It becomes abandoned and vulnerable. And flocks will not usually put themselves in danger to go after one lost sheep or one lost member. Neither do we as faith communities often. The reason Jesus might have compared us to sheep was not only because of their stupidity, But because that which sometimes is our strength is also our weakness. We love community. We love who we are together. And sometimes we focus on that and our herds stay together and we're really good at identifying our leaders and not looking for trouble and running from trouble. Our senses are really good of, okay, that is not something we should pursue so we're going to draw this line right now. We, a lot of times, act like a sheep herd as a community of followers of Jesus. But unfortunately, we sometimes don't like to go find that which is on the outside and bring it back into the fold. If it's getting dark and the sheep herd realizes a member is missing, they're running for cover together. They're not sticking out where wolves run around looking for that one lost sheep. That is an aspect of the church as well. We worry about things. We worry about our community and the integrity of our community and the image of our community. And we don't go pursuing into the community of lost things. So this morning, as we look at this story, as I read this story, let's pause and reflect. Let's discuss on some takeaways from this passage. You should have received a bulletin when you came in, and you'll find that there's some underlines in it. Some places where I invite you to follow along, to fill them out as we, as we go over these discussion points. I encourage you to look at them this week. We don't get everything right away. And sometimes it's fun to come back and chew on things later and go, oh, I get that now. So I encourage you just to open your bulletin and follow along. There's there's a few points that I'm going to make that I notice in this passage that I really think speak to our context here at East Petersburg Mennonite Church. First, the first thing that we see is Jesus intentionally lived his life in such a missional way that actually invited the abandoned and unrepentant into community. Jesus intentionally lived his life in a missional way that actually invited the abandoned and unrepentant into community. The first thing we see happen in this story is that people gather around Jesus to hear what he has to say. Wherever he goes, people gather around Jesus to hear what he says. Jesus is a natural shepherd. He calls us to live and love like him, but he also calls us to mirror some of his leadership skills. Wherever Jesus went, people gathered around him. Do we have people that gather around us, that, that want to hear us, people that are outsiders? Jesus is not speaking to the flock. He is not calling the leaders of the law and the teachers of the religious understanding to, to come in and get this deeper insight. He is gathering community naturally with people on the outside. It's intentionally what he did. He looked for those who were feeling abandoned. Now, when I use the word missional, I want to make two points. We have a statement here at East Petersburg Mennonite Church that we've kind of defined the word missional so that we know what we're talking about when we say that word. And that is, as Mennonites, we look to peaceably and intentionally, missionally, follow Jesus by lovingly announcing, demonstrating, and re- uh, demonstrating and embodying the reigning good news and goodness of the kingdom of God to our neighbors and to each other. So there's three aspects of what missional means. We get hung up on this word, but it means that we own what we believe. We demonstrate it. We embody it. We announce it. Somewhere along the line, Christians thought we just should just really get good at doing good things and saying good things, but forgot to embody it so much that it causes people to gather around us, people on the outside. Michael Frost, in his book, Surprise the World, explains the word missional like this. By missional, he says... I mean alerting my neighbor to the reign of God, to the good news of God. That is what we mean when we talk about missional. It becomes something we not only announce and demonstrate, but something we own, something we embody. And it causes people to want to gather around us. It was through that action, through that way that Jesus gathered community, that Jesus was actually able to build equity with them that allowed him to invest and to build in their lives. They wanted to gather around Jesus because even though they were outsiders, they were completely different than him. They weren't on the same plane of existence of him. They wanted to hear what he had said. He had built equity with them. He spent time with them. He had spent time when he went to a person of importance house. He didn't spend time with a person of importance. He spent with people that we would call uh, hookers or people that we would call druggies. He spent time with the people that were the abandoned, the outcasted, the ones that no one wanted to be with. Jesus built equity through doing that. It wasn't like he talked to the religious crew and said, hey, when you guys want to come on in the inside, I'll teach you too. No, Jesus even when he was on the inside spots, looked for those who were on the outside. There are people even in our own context that are on the outside even though they are inside here this morning. When I lived in Southern California, there was this guy that I sometimes engaged conversation with, if you want to call it conversation. You can Google him. He's pretty famous. He was a street evangelist that would sit on the pier, and he literally would bring a box about the size of that... uh, drum thing there, and, and and he would call this the way of the master, and he would stand on this thing, and and he would argue with people if they thought they were going to go to heaven or if they had broken any of the Ten Commandments, and his belief was that he could stand on a pedestal on the pier and, and speak the kingdom into people's lives. The problems with that that I would raise with him on the few times I'd engaged him was that he had no equity with people. He wasn't able to actually speak into their lives because they didn't know him from anyone else. In fact, he kind of came off looking like a jerk because he would sit up there and go, you are going to hell, you are a sinner. But sometimes this is what we look like as the church too. We are these people on pedestals that have all of the answers, but we don't take time to invest equity with people that are outside of our context. Be careful that you don't do that. In this story, we see that Jesus quickly wants to build equity with those who other people didn't. We discover it is the self-righteous who have grown complacent with their faith that will always miss out on what God is doing. The Pharisees were quick to judge what Jesus was doing. They were quick to kind of just put in their smart remark of just, He is so wrong. Jesus doesn't even respond to him. He goes right back into the story. But what we learn about that is that those who are often the most self-righteous or have grown complacent with their faith or the existence of their faith are actually the ones that miss out on what God is doing. We can become so complacent and self-righteous with what we do here on Sunday mornings that we will actually miss out on what God is doing out there. And yes, God is at work in the neighborhood. God is at work in other churches in our neighborhood. God is so much bigger than whatever we understand him to be or what we see him doing in our, our present context of East Petersburg Mennonite Church. God is at work at large, and we need to be able to get over ourselves so we can see that. As Jesus finds this moment of people gathered around him, and as Pharisees sneer at him, he uses this as what I'll call a teachable moment. And this is your next point. As Jesus finds a teachable moment with these individuals, he uses an experiential story that connects with their context. He tells a story that they're going to get because it's similar to their lives. It's something they get. He builds equity with people, and then he actually talks to them in their language. He doesn't use kingdom language. He doesn't use Christianese language. He doesn't use highfalutin language, right? He likes to talk to them in ways that he knows they will understand. you form community with people, don't talk above them. Don't pretend that you're somewhere farther down the road than they are. Be willing to journey with them with their language, with their understandings, with their context. Look for these teachable moments as you gather community with people. Jesus' story illuminates aspects of the kingdom. The love of the Father's heart and the trespasses of becoming complacent. It's three things that we see in this few short seven verses. We see some aspects of the kingdom. We see the love of the Father's heart. And we see the trespasses or the dangers of becoming complacent in our faith. The aspect we learn about the kingdom of God is that it rejoices when God's love gets to embrace an abandoned son or daughter. The shepherd doesn't care that These 99 sheep are okay. What he cares about is one of them is way out there. One of those is feeling abandoned. One of those is feeling alone. And that is what his heart is. He wants to be able to embrace that sheep, to be able to pick it up and put it on his shoulders and carry it home. He is not concerned so much about what we are doing here right now as much as he's concerned about what those who don't get to be here today are doing. That is the love of the Father. That is what we see coming he wants to embrace an abandoned son or daughter you know i mentioned that that sheep can be kind of smelly they get sticky and yellow yellow for being out in the weather and god doesn't care about that he still longs to embrace these sheep who are not clean who are not in the fold and get to be with these people that are a little yellow and sticky and smelly and a little annoying and our anxieties raised because we're way out in the abandoned area and no one's around with us that's where he wants to show his love. The aspect we learn about the kingdom of God is that it rejoices when God's love gets to embrace an abandoned son or daughter. In this story, we also learn that the Father's heart is continuously in pursuit of those in the wilderness, longing to carry what was on the outside and bring it to the inside. The most powerful part of this story for me is that this sheep, we could say it's lost in the wilderness or lost in the desert, whatever season you identify with. It's lost in this, this mountainside away from everyone. And the flock has said it's not worth our time. It's not worth our safety. It's not worth our comfort or our identity. The best thing we can do is not engage that lost sheep and just run for the fold. But in this story, the shepherd says, hey, it's great, but I'm, I'm going out there. I'm leaving you guys. You guys are fine. I'm actually going to go out there. I'm going to put myself in danger. I am going to put myself on the line. I'm going to go through this darkness to find that one lost sheep, to be able to put it on my shoulders, to be able to embrace it, to be able to carry that which was outside and bring it inside. Not tell him, here's the path to get back. We like to do that too. When you guys are ready to come back, here's the steps you've got to follow to be one of us again. No, Jesus picks this sheep up. The shepherd picks his sheep up and carries it back to safety. The third thing we see is the trespasses of becoming complacent actually calls us to be outsiders to the redemptive mission of God. The trespasses of becoming complacent actually calls us to be outsiders to the redemptive mission of God. By becoming so comfortable with ourselves in the flock, those sheep missed out on something really cool. That The the heart of the shepherd was to actually find that lost sheep. The heart of Jesus is actually to find those that are out there. We get so occupied with what we do together as a herd that we lose in the redemptive work of God, the redemptive mission of God, that God longs for that which is outside, that which is lost in the wilderness or in the desert, to be embraced, to be felt, And to be carried inside. Do we get that? Do we live lives that announce that, demonstrate that, and embody that? Do we missionally believe that that which is outside is more important to God than what is inside? And if so, then let's analyze our time. Are we actually spending more time on making sure Sunday morning happens without a hitch than we are worried about how we are gathering intentionally community outside of our context? As we begin to close... I want to invite you into a challenge. Not the kind of challenge that I gave Ray comfort on the beach when he would stand on his pedestal. But a challenge in which I think God is telling you, I want you to experience me in a deeper way. I want you to find out what the Lord is asking you through this passage. In a season of Lent, in a season of your life, I want you to pause and listen for the voice of God and say, how is it in my life, Am I supposed to view that sheep that is lost? We're going to use, I'm going to suggest that you use an up-in-out rhythm. Pay attention to what you have observed, reflected, and what we discussed discuss today. And identify, what is it that Jesus is saying to you? And this breaks down like this. What I mean by an up-in-out rhythm is this. Up. What ways is God calling us? as East Petersburg Mennonite Church, are you, as whoever you are, to discover the Father's heart a little deeper? How is he asking you not to get it up here, not just to hear it as a sermon that, hey, yeah, God is really occupied with uh, pursuing that which is on the outside. How do we begin to really go, God wants me to discover that. God wants me to point my life upward in such a way that I am also occupied with that. In what ways, as we hit pause in this Lent season, Is God inviting you to discover the Father's heart just a little bit more? And with the in part, it's really easy. It's just where is Jesus challenging us in this context to be a little bit more like him? How can we at East Petersburg Mennonite Church, or you, how can we become a little bit more like this shepherd in this story? A little less concerned about the flock and a little bit more concerned about the neighborhood. How do we own that in this season as we hit pause and intentionally look for that? And the out part of the rhythm looks like this. How is God calling us to respond to those on the outside of our context, both to those who are really outside our context in our neighborhoods, but also those that are in our context, those that are with us Sunday morning right now that are in the desert in some place, those that are feeling abandoned or feeling alone, those that are feeling like they are loneliness, that they are squirming to hear the voice of God, and they are in a desert place even though they are here Sunday morning. How do we get behind those? Sometimes we have made those people feel that way, and other times they've done something to feel that themselves. But how do we become occupied with being part of their healing process? As we seek to align ourselves to Jesus, as we pause and look for what he's saying to us, we want to align ourselves to it, please take note of where God is challenging you in these areas. On the bottom part of your bulletin, under pause, under the, the, the uh, fill in the blanks, there's two words. There's pause and there's alignment. Make an intentional plan this week, right? Don't let it just be head knowledge and will just chew on it for a little bit over lunch. This week really push it out. What is it that I need to do to embody, demonstrate, and announce this a little bit more? How do I make some really good news a habit and part of my character? Make an intentional plan this week to walk in those areas. Find accountability as you you embark into a desert, a new way, and finally then act on your plan and find yourself aligned to God. So make a plan, find accountability, and actually act on it. All by answering the question, where is God challenging me to align to his heart?